Great is his faithfulness, and we are certainly excited to all be here together, thankful for the privilege of being here together to open up his holy and inspired word, to continue our worship uh, as we read his text this morning. So if you'd please turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. So if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Then God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained and the water receded from the earth going forth and returning And at the end of 150 days, the waters decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. Now the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. Then it happened at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made and he sent out a raven. And it went flying back and forth until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of its foot. So it returned to him into the ark. For the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he stretched out his hand and he took it and brought it into the ark to himself. Then he waited another seven days and again he sent out the dove from the ark. And the dove came, toward, uh, came to him toward evening, and behold, in its beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and set out the dove, but it did not return to him again. Now it happened in the 600th and first year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out, every, bring out with you every living being of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and that they may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. While all the days of the earth remain, Seed time and harvest, 
cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title for this morning's message is Post-Diluvian Providence. The term post-Diluvian, of course, refers to the events which occurred directly after the great deluge, the great flood, not just any old flood, but Mabul, the flood in Genesis chapter 7, God's flood, which he sovereignly and providentially orchestrated to pour out upon his creation from the beginning of the world, from even before the foundations of the world, even before the globe was formed by his powerful, omnipotent word alone, the sphere which at one point was made up of the elemental waters which his spirit hovered over, then was molded together before again being separated by the expanse, the expanse separating the waters from the water, says Genesis 1.6, the Waters, which we saw in chapter 7, were unleashed by that same omnipotent word. God's waters now emerging, bursting forth from God's ground, while also pouring down from God's heaven, pouring down God's wrath upon God's creatures, corrupted men and women tainted by Adam's original sin, tainted by their own sin. This was an evil generation filled with people who violated God's standard of holiness and were therefore subjected to God's judgment, all but one man, God's man. One man and his family, eight souls, eight men and women, sinners themselves, worthy of God's wrath themselves, but eight men and women who by God's grace and by God's mercy And to demonstrate God's faithfulness in his fulfilling the promise made to Adam and Eve of a deliverer who was to come, were spared. As a result, God's righteous line was preserved. God commanded this man to make an ark. Not Noah's ark, but God's ark. Let me remind you as we dive into this eighth chapter that this story of salvation, of redemption, of restoration, of Sinful man's reconciliation to a holy God even is not ultimately about sinful man. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about Yahweh. Divine redemption, as we'll see over the next couple of weeks, is all by his grace alone and all for his glory alone. It's for his glory. And I think we're given no better illustration of this than Right here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Noah's response. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Noah knew who all the glory belonged to in the end. It was demonstrated in his worshipful response to the flood. More on that in a moment. First, let's dive into our text and pick up where we left off last week. Again, As right from the get-go, we are again introduced to the main character. As Moses writes, then God. Then God remembered Noah. Again, this is a testimony of God, of Elohim, of the Lord God the Almighty, of the great I Am, of Yahweh himself. A testimony of his, his wrath? Absolutely. Of his judgment? Of course. 
of a mighty demonstration of his righteous indignation and fury towards sin and the sinners who committed that sin? Definitely. But more than that, my brothers and sisters, it's a testimony of his faithfulness. Of his faithfulness. We sang it this morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. That's good theology right there. Which is why we sing it, right? No? Because it's a declaration of the steadfast love of the Lord for those who belong to him. Because it's a declaration of his chesed, his loyal love, his special love reserved for those whom he has predestined for salvation and called to himself. A loyal love and grace which far surpasses the common love and common grace he has for the world. This is a demonstration of the love that he has for his elect. In this case, Noah. Noah and the magnificent seven. Magnificent in what regard? That they were so great God had no choice but to elect them to salvation? Negative. Rather, for reasons only known to him, God sovereignly predetermined for them to be spared from his wrath through no, absolutely no doing of their own. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, Noah found favor with God before he was declared to be righteous. That's divine electing grace. Favor and grace that he and his family were going to be rescued, even while literally every other person on the earth at that time was would perish by the roaring waters. They were preserved. And again, by God's good sovereign pleasure alone. So then, what does it mean that God remembered Noah here? Well, in light of all that, we certainly can eliminate the possibility of there being some sort of cosmic recollection in the mind of God concerning Noah and the seven that the animals on this ark, uh, along with literally the last eight human beings on this earth, somehow slipped the mind of the infinitely wise, all-omniscient creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, that the Lord of all creation became so preoccupied with heavenly ventures, he forgot all about Noah and his family, only to at some point come to his senses and say, oh, you know what? I totally spaced that guy with his family in that floating box that I was talking with last year. What was his name again? Uh, Oh yeah, Noah. I better check in on them to see how they're doing. So God remembered Noah. That can't be the meaning. Because God never forgets anything. Ever. Uh, Job 37 says he is perfect in knowledge. He's perfect. He never forgets anything. He never misremembers anything. He never fails to recall anything. Nothing ever escapes his memory. He's not like us. He has an infinitely perfect memory. He never learns anything. And he never loses anything, just like he never increases in knowledge. He never decreases in knowledge. He never improves, and he never diminishes. And why is that? Because he is God. He's perfect. No, this is Moses narrating from our perspective, saying, look, as far as we're concerned, from our standpoint, God remembered Noah. Now it's possible that Noah 
It felt, felt like God had forgotten him as the weeks and months went on. Perhaps Noah felt like crying out with the psalmist, Why do you stand afar off, Yahweh? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We don't know that for sure. But perhaps Noah was feeling abandoned by God as he floated upon this watery globe like God had forgotten about him and his family. But Moses said, no, 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 no. God remembers. Yahweh always remembers his people. Always. Yahweh sees his people and he sees to the commitments and promises he makes to his people. In fact, the more we read, the more we realize God's remembering here is actually God's acting upon a previous commitment made to a covenant partner. This is far from the last time we'll see it here. In chapter 19, God remembers Abraham as he spares Lot and his family from being destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 30, God remembers Rachel. God listened to her, opened up her womb, so she conceived, bore a son, and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, may Yahweh give me another son. Exodus 2, so God heard the groaning of the Israelites and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Exodus 6, furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery and I have remembered my covenant. He didn't forget them. He had promises to keep, promises that would be kept. And there are a multitude of examples throughout the rest of Scripture. Alan Ross rightly said, to say God remembered Noah is to say that God faithfully kept his promise to Noah by intervening to end the flood. Hear me this morning, my brothers and sisters. God never forgets anything. God knows all things. God retains all things because God is intimately involved in all things. He causes all things. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11, okay? For example, look again at our verse 1. Then God uh, remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. I mean, think of all those animals, right? Think of all those animals. Think of all the birds. Think of not only the few sparrows on the ark at that time, but the literal billions of sparrows who would come after them. And yet Jesus said, not a one of them falls to the ground apart from the knowledge of your Father in heaven. And Noah and his family were worth more than many sparrows. So God remembered Noah. He remembered Noah. He remembered his covenant promise to Noah. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. I'm about to blot out man whom I've created along with all the animals and creeping things, Genesis 6, verse 7. I'm about to destroy the earth and all the flesh on the earth, Genesis 6, verse 13. But... Genesis 6, verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. You shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Take the animals. They will come to you. Take some food for you and for them. Get in that ark. I'll close the door behind you. 
After seven more days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. And that's exactly what he did. For 40 days and 40 nights, he caused the flood to come upon the earth. One of the eeriest texts in all of Scripture, Genesis 7, verse 23, thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah remained, those that were with him in the ark. Water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. Then God remembered Noah. Now, think of those days, those 150 days on this floating box with your wife and your sons and their wives. I mean, the tensions the struggles, the sounds, the smells. Every time I read this account, I think of what it must have smelled like in there. Must have been awful. But even worse, here we have 150 days that have gone by with seemingly no word from God to Noah. And it's not like he gave Noah any kind of time frame here. God didn't say, go over there and start making hash marks on that log, and once you get to 150, you'll notice that things start to go down a little bit. No, he didn't say that. He just says, the water prevailed upon the earth for 150 days. There's no other communication. I don't know the significance of that number, 150. It's just how long it took for the water's intended purposes to be accomplished here. Uh, Yet, still verse 1, God caused a wind, ruach, same word as spirit in Genesis 1-2, to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also, the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. The water receded from the earth, going forth and returning, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. 150 days. Now, I don't know about you, but I love those two words there. God caused. God caused a wind. Just like Jesus woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence! Be still. And the wind died down. It became perfectly calm. He caused the wind to cease immediately. Of course, the wind always obeys its creator. As a result of this wind in Genesis 8, God caused the fulfillment of the promise to preserve and save Noah and his family. The the salvation of Noah and his family was accomplished by God's direct involvement in every minute detail of the flood. This is called divine providence. Providence. Okay, I want you to listen to the definition of providence from the Westminster Confession of Faith. I think it's the best. The Westminster Confession of Faith states this. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. And this makes sense. For we are told that Christ himself, who is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 It should come as absolutely no shock to us then that Christ, who was there at the beginning, who was with God at the beginning, indeed who was God, the one who is before all things, and in him all things hold together, both 
sustains and maintains all things by that very same word. Right? He is involved in every intimate detail of his creation. Every detail. In other words, there is no such thing as chance. There is no such thing as luck. There is no such thing as happenstance. There are no accidents. There are no random acts. There is no such thing as superstition. There is no such thing even as Mother Nature who is angry with us for building nuclear power plants or driving diesel pickup trucks. All that stuff is rubbish imagined in the mind of wicked men who hate God. In reality, everything, (laughs) everything, including the winds that initiated the drying process directly following the flood, were sovereignly and providentially caused by the one who upholds how many things? All things, everything, by the word of his power. That's right. Now, let me ask you this question. Is this an important truth for you to know about considering who it is that controls the eternal destination of your everlasting soul? Is this important for you to know? Providence, sovereignty? I would say so. Well, then take comfort this morning because you worship a God who is absolutely sovereign. Take comfort in the divine providence of God this morning. Spurgeon said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against a steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heaven. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as surely as the stars in their courses. That the chirping of an aphid over a rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence and the fall of sere leaves from the poplar as it is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He who believes in God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway point between an almighty God who worketh all things according to the good pleasure of his own will and no God at all. A God who cannot do as as he pleases, a God whose will is frustrated, is not a God. Cannot be a God. I could not believe in such a God as that. End quote. God was directly involved in every detail of Noah's life. Every moment of every day, from his conception to his toddling around, to his growing up as a boy, to his helping his father care for the family as a young man, to the meeting of his wife, to the welcoming their first child, and second and third child. And God was directly involved in every moment of their lives as well, providing for them, sustaining them up to this point. And the same can be said for your life and my life as we are gathered here together this very morning. He is involved in every single minute detail of your life. Every detail. Isn't that comforting to you this morning? It's good to know. We need him to be this involved. 
we love him to be this involved. For without the absolute providence of God, he is no God at all. What we're doing this morning is in vain. I mean, look at the precise nature of Moses' words, even in verse 7, as if to say, listen, this was no random general occurrence here. This was no pagan myth or fable containing ambiguous descriptors of events here. Here's the exact timeline. Here are the numbers. Here's the location even. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Now, the water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains appeared. By the way, it doesn't say that the ark rested on Mount Ararat itself, which was a well-known, uh, is a well-known peak in modern-day Turkey that stands nearly 17,000 feet high. It doesn't say that it rested on that specific mountain, much to the dismay of many explorers and world travelers since who have sought to find evidence for the ark upon it. It just says the mountains, plural, of Ararat, meaning the whole range. So lots of luck finding it. Although there is no such thing as luck, right? Don't want to contradict myself. Where the ark is today is not the point. The point is, the water that was high enough to cover a 17,000-foot mountain, foot-high mountain, now began to decrease. In this specific year, in this specific month, on this specific day, 150 days after the rain began, God caused it to begin to go away. Now, again, why make such a big deal out of this? Because I want to encourage you who truly believe that you have placed your faith in a totally sovereign God, a totally sovereign Lord. I want to alleviate any anxieties you may have about the goings-on in your life, in your day, and in your age, in your society. While it may seem like we're living in a time of utter corruption and things seem absolutely nuts right now, in a time where evil and chaos is more rampant than even in Noah's day, maybe, that in reality, the sovereign God of the heavens and the earth is in control of it all. He's in control. He's declared the end from the beginning. From ancient times to things that haven't even yet been done. He knows them all together. He's declared them all. It's done in his eyes. He's in control over all things. That's what this means. That's what he means when he says all things. He is intimately involved in every aspect of his creation. You can trust that. You can, you can place all of your trust in this promise of his inspired word. The psalmist said, For I know that Yahweh is great, that our Lord is greater than all the gods. Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. I love that. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps, the one who causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth, who makes Lightnings for the rain who brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Wait, where does the wind come from? From him. From Yahweh. Every drop. Every drop. Everything is from him. Every little drop of rain that he causes to fall on both the just and the unjust is from him. Which means... Not only can we trust him as God, no matter what comes our way, but we can then praise him as God. 
and spend the rest of our days on earth and all of eternity thereafter beholding his majesty. 150 days. 150 days, God causes the water to prevail upon this globe. 40 days it rains. 110 days it continues to rise. And 150 days later from that first sovereignly ordained drop, God stops the water from coming up causes the waters to decrease. And this ark, this floating, sailless, rudderless wooden box with all these animals, with the eight preserved souls, begins to get hung up on some mountain peaks. Okay, I want you to imagine being there. I want you to imagine being there on the seventh month, 17th day. Imagine that sound as you're just floating along as you have for the past half a year. Imagine the sound of the ark as it scrapes along that hard rock. Then all of a sudden you're stopped. Imagine what that moment would be like. The shock. Whoa, what just happened here? The joy in your heart, right? Something's happening. Well, they had some time to celebrate here because Moses says in verse 5 the water decreased steadily until the 10th month in the 10th month on the first day of the month the tops of the mountains appeared that's two and a half months later 74 days after the scrape finally you could start to see the highest peaks then verse 6.2 in your outline excuse me another 40 days from that Noah begins some a kind of investigation. Some might call it a probing. As like Joshua, he, he begins sending out his spies, his feathered spies. <clears throat> then it happened at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. He sent out a raven, went out flying back and forth until the water was dried up from the earth. Remember, there was just one window. There was that vent that ran across the whole top of the ark, but this one window, this was likely a hatch uh, on top of the ark. It was finally opened almost a year later. Noah sends out a raven. Now, I don't know the significance of the raven being sent first. Maybe some of you do, other than that they're very smart. They're very strong. At first glance, it may seem like it could fly for extended periods of time. I mean, in this case, it says that the raven flew back and forth until the waters of the earth were dry which we're told in verse 13 was the first month and the first of the month, which means it was 39 days that this raven was supposedly flying to uh, and fro. <coughs> now, I've learned that some birds are indeed capable of flying that long continuously. The common swift, for example, can fly for months at a time. A bar-tailed godwit has the record for the longest, flying, uh, longest flight that traveled 7,500 miles nonstop. Little bird. Interestingly however, interestingly, however, the pigeon can only fly for a few days. Now, I'm no ornithologist. In fact, I had to look up what that was. One who studies birds. But I know that a raven is much heavier than a pigeon, yet it has somewhat of a similar build, which means it probably can't fly for more than two or three days straight. However, remember, this particular raven had both an ark and some freshly revealed mountain peaks to land upon and rest. I don't know what this looked like, but I know this. 
Noah said at one point, okay, I'm done with the raven. He's just flying around. Who knows where he is? I know. I'll send out a dove. Verse 8. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the soles of its foot, so it returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he stretched out his hand, took it in. Very compassionate, very tender moment from Noah here. It's like the first snow white scene. Uh, He took it, brought it into the ark to himself. Then he waited another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. Now apparently, the dove wasn't too fond of mountain peaks. Interesting to note, however, the difference between the two birds. A raven can only land on mountain peaks and be content. He can feed off of carrion, the rotting flesh of humans or fish or whatever was at the surface of the waters. Now, I don't think there were uh, floating human bodies at this time, but again, I wasn't there, thankfully. The raven, apparently, was okay with things, okay, but not the dove. The dove had a select diet, a diet of vegetation, grains, sometimes bugs, but a diet which at this point was only found on either the reserves in the ark or from that which grew upon the ground. And I mean the ground ground, okay? The low ground. Not the mountain peaks, but the base of the mountains where the climate was completely different. This dove found something that was able to both grow at ground level and when fully submerged. Either that or it had to be something that grew very quickly, like began to sprout leaves within 30 days, which is the time frame given here. Either way, guess what kind of tree meets both of those requirements? Olive tree. Verse 11. The dove came to him toward evening. Again, note this preciseness here. Not early in the morning, not just before lunchtime, not in the afternoon, but in the evening this dove returned. And behold, in its beak was a freshly picked olive leaf not a branch. You may have seen the, uh, the doves with the olive branch in their mouth. Way too heavy for a dove. <laughs> this is, again, I'm no ornithologist, <laughs> is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> with the body weight, no, it's just, it's just a leaf. He says, just a leaf. A freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Well, Verse 12 said, then he waited yet another seven days, sent out the dove, but it did not return to him again. Personally, I think this particular dove knew of the sacrificial celebration coming in verse 20 and took off. (laughs) But I don't know. Either way, it's gone. Noah's probing is done. His investigation concluded. Verse 13, now it happened. In the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. Get this. Noah, knowing there would be no more rain, as much as he was able, as as far as he could tell, takes off this covering, the huge covering. Uh, He looks out from the mountaintop view and sees no more water. There's no more flood. However, verse 14 says, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. That's almost two months later that the ground was dry. This may be translated dry, dry, like walkable dry. No more 
not just no more flood, but still a murky, swampy, muddy mess dry. But now the earth was dry enough to walk upon, dry enough for humans and hooved animals to walk upon, which is exactly what happens in verse 15, where all of a sudden God speaks again. Now a year later, 365 days plus 10 or 11, depending on how you count the last day, God speaks Now remember, Noah hasn't had a line in this narrative since the beginning. We have yet to hear from Noah in the Bible. Isn't that something? We read of his actions. We read of his participation in the events, the building of the ark, the getting things ready for the animals, keeping them alive, the whole raven and dove thing. But he doesn't actually say anything till the later part of chapter 9, which we won't even get to for the next three weeks. He's been on this ark for over a year with his family and all these animals, and it seems like this is the first communication he received from God the whole time. And yet, contrary to the assumptions of many commentators and scholars, even very reputable ones, I might add, we don't read of a single complaint or lamentation by Noah. You know what that's called? That's called faith. Noah had great faith. Noah believed God's word from back in chapter 6, the promises of God's words that they, that they would be delivered at some point. As the ark now rested on the firm foundation of this mountain, so Noah's faith rested on the firm foundation of God's word as he, for lack of a better term, weathered the storm until this very moment. I wonder if any of you are in a season of, of waiting in your life, waiting on the Lord. If you'd like an answer for some major decision or relatively minor decision from God, but it seems as though he's silent. Well, I'd encourage you to draw from the example of Noah and wait upon the Lord. Wait. It's not easy for us to do. Wait upon the Lord, meditate upon the promises of his word, and prayerfully wait for him to provide you with clear direction and be ready when it comes. Be ready. In Noah's case, it was an audible voice. We don't get audible voices today from God. If you do, come talk to the elders after the service. In Noah's case, audible voice. Verse 15. Then God spoke to Noah, saying... Get out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, that they may be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Same words to the animals in Genesis 1, by the way, on the fifth day. Here we see them again. The mandate has been renewed. The earth has been renewed. This is a whole new world here. Go out. Be fruitful. Multiply. God says. Well, in classic Noahic fashion, the Lord commanded and he obeyed immediately. He just did what Yahweh said. Verse 18, so Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him. He went out. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by their families from the ark. I love what Calvin said of this verse. 
How great must have been the fortitude of the man who, after the incredible weariness of a whole year, when the deluge had ceased and new life has shone forth, does not yet move a foot out of his sepulcher without the command of God. (laughs) So good. Noah waited on the Lord's command, and he came out. Again, he obeyed. He obeyed. And in so doing, he again gave us a marvelous picture of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both exist. Both are biblical teaching. Noah knew that Yahweh was absolutely sovereign. He knew of the providence of God, yet he didn't use it as an excuse to sit back and do nothing. No, he built an ark. He gathered the food. He kept the animals alive for over a year. He sent the birds. He participated in the events here. Just as we are called to participate in the events of our lives. Just as we are called to walk by faith. We're not called to sit back and relax by faith. To kick up our feet by faith and say, God's got this. Jesus, take the wheel. That's nonsense. In other words, we can't just say, well, God is in control, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing and waste away. I'm not going to be a godly man or a godly woman or a godly husband or a godly wife or a godly mother or a godly father, a godly member of the body of Christ just because he is sovereign over, over it all and whatever happens, happens, happens. We can't do that. We can't be the, the frozen chosen who say it's God's will to save those He saves, so never mind sending missionaries or preaching the gospel and praying for the souls of men. May they be damned if that should be his will. We can't say that. You know what I call folks who think like that? Unbelievers. Because they don't believe this book. I don't see that anywhere. God is sovereign, so just sit back and relax. I got this, so don't go out into the world to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. Don't worry about it. I got it. Nonsense. Nonsense. No, we are called to act. We have a responsibility to believe, to pray, to repent, to witness, to preach, to trust, to obey, to live out our lives in a way that's honoring and pleasing to God. Did you see this? Noah kept the animals alive. He kept his, his wife alive. He kept his family alive, his kids. He, he believed, he obeyed. He waited upon the Lord. He brought them out, but only when God said, bring them out. Then he acted. God ordained. God orchestrated. God caused. God moved. Yet, Noah believed. Noah obeyed. Noah acted. And Noah worked. Noah worked, and Noah worshipped. He worshipped, okay? Note, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. James Boyce summed up Noah's actions here in verse 20 perfectly when he said, the greatest wonder of Genesis 8 is not that God remembered Noah, but that Noah remembered God. It's not our nature to remember, least of all things that are spiritual. 
end quote. Noah remembered God. Divine sovereignty, human responsibility. Noah worshipped God. He worshipped Yahweh. He gave a thank offering, which technically would be prescribed or written down for another thousand years. Notice the language in verse 21. And Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. This is the same verbiage found in the institution of the sacrificial law found in Leviticus chapter 1. Bring your offering to the Lord, both as a gift of gratitude and for an atonement, satisfaction, appeasement of God's wrath. For an atonement, give me a bull from your flock, unblemished. Put your hand on its head. You make atonement for your sin. Kill it. Slaughter it. Splash its blood around the altar of the entrance of the tent of meeting. Skin it. Cut it into pieces. Put a fire on the altar. Arrange the wood there. Take the entrails, the legs, wash them, and then light it all up. This is an offering by fire, and it's a soothing aroma to the Lord. That's what it says. Same with sheep, goats. A soothing aroma to the Lord. The birds, the pigeons, the doves, as a soothing aroma to the Lord. This is what Noah was doing. He was expressing his gratitude to the Lord for his faithfulness and his steadfast love. Now, I can't help but think of those animals whom the Lord caused to come into the ark back in chapter 7. The Lord who providentially caused these animals to come to Noah to go into the ark, to go right to their assigned places on the ark, to live on this wooden box for over a year, only to come out to the sweet air of freedom as they find their footing on dry ground and hear Noah say, okay, you, 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 come over here. Your time has come. <laughs> but you see, the Lord knew. The Lord knew. That's why he said, bring extra. The Lord knows, okay? The Lord knows. As Abraham said to young Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He will provide. The Lord provides. And he did provide. There were enough bulls and lambs and pigeons and doves of every clean animal for Noah to make this sacrifice, which was soothing to the Lord. The Lord will indeed provide. And how soothing, just how soothing was this aroma of these animals offered up by the Lord and his family, so soothing that in verse 21, Yahweh said to himself, notice, not Noah, but to himself. We'll look at the unilateral covenant made with Noah over the next couple weeks, but here he smells this soothing aroma and says to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. To himself, he says, while all the days of the earth remain, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This is all-encompassing language here with a qualifier, mind you. As long as the earth remains, every year, Every season, every month, every single day, I will never strike down every living thing as I, has, as I have done while all of the earth, the days of the earth remain. And here we are, some 4,300 years later, some 1.5 million days following this flood, and he's kept true to his word. And he will keep true to his word. 
Again, more on this promise next week, but the application for us this morning is clear. Like Noah, you can trust with your whole heart the promises of God. You can place all of your trust in the word of God which never fails. You can bank the eternal destination of your everlasting soul upon Yahweh and his word, which says that he cares for those who belong to him. He remembers those who belong to him. He knows every intimate detail, even to every hair upon every head of those who belong to him. You can trust God's word when it says, Yahweh will provide the lamb. Yahweh will provide the sacrifice, my son. Because he did provide the sacrifice for Noah, for Abraham, for Moses, and for every faithful man or woman of God since. He provided the ultimate sacrifice. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The very Son of God himself. The seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, who walked the earth that he spoke into existence with the word of his power, who lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life as God's Christ, our rescuer, our deliverer, our savior from the righteous wrath of an infinitely holy God. Salvation which comes to us in the very same way it came to Noah. By divine grace alone, through divinely provided faith alone and Christ's sin-atoning work alone and his sacrificial death, subsequent burial, triumphant resurrection, and glorious ascension to the Father. I want to ask if the same thing can be said of you this morning. Have you, by God's providence, come to a true and saving faith in the promises of God's word? Have you believed in the gospel of grace and the gospel of God, which is the power of God unto salvation? Had you believed in his gospel, which says that he sent his very own son into the world to die for sinners? To bear the sin of and take the place of all who would but believe in him and call upon his name alone for salvation. Is this true of you? Do you believe it? Have you been spared from the righteous wrath of the Father by faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the only way to the Father. I pray this is true of you and your soul. If not, I would plead with you to recognize how the Lord in His providential will has brought you to this place at this time to hear this invitation to come to Him this morning. To come to the Father through Jesus the Son, to believe his word, to hear his call, to turn from this world, to turn from your sin, and to turn to him by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Would you do that this morning? I pray and trust that you will. Uh, He is both willing and able to save your soul today. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayers. We have Noel and the music team come up and lead us in Musical worship. Well, our Heavenly Father, we do just thank you for <clears throat> the amazing grace that you've poured out on us in your divine providence, your sovereignty, bringing us again to this place at this time, born in this generation, 
to the parents that we were born to, with the friends that you ordained for us to have, leading us to this place, to be a part of this body, to hear this text this morning to encourage us that we can trust in you fully. We do. And it's a privilege to do so. We recognize that, Lord. We're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for your gospel. And we're so, so thankful for your son, the precious Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.